everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode, we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history. And today we are going to be talking about the case of Tim McLean, also known as the Greyhound Bus Murder. So today's case, oh my God, it is a horrible one. It is one of those cases that is pretty infamous. I'm sure you may already know it, especially if you are from Canada. And from the very first time I heard this story, it has haunted me, like truly haunted me. And I have always known that I wanted to cover this case at some point. So here we are. And this case is just truly shocking. I cannot believe that this case is real. It is one of those cases that just feels like a movie. So Tim McLean was just catching a Greyhound bus one day in his home country of Canada when another man climbed on board a man named Vince Lee. And Vince, he was having some things going on in his life. And unfortunately, once he came into contact with Tim on this fateful bus journey, it just ended in an absolute horror scene. Like some of the things that happened on that bus have truly disturbed me. So I got to give a warning for today's episode. It is going to get graphic. So no eating. This is your no eating warning for today's episode. Please listen to me. So with all of that being said, let's dive in. Vince Lee was born on the 30th of April, 1968, making him a Taurus. And he was born in northeastern China, where he lived with his parents and his two siblings. Now, not much is known about Vince's childhood. However, you guys know I like to do my research and I don't like it when I don't know about people's childhoods. So I managed to do some digging and I did find out a little bit about his childhood. Not too much, but at least we know some things. So far, Lastly, he was born one month premature. And because of this, I think he had like a few illnesses. I'm not sure, but he was described as a sickly child. And he was described as a sickly child up until his teenage years. He was also described as a late bloomer. It's said that he didn't start walking or talking until several years after his peers. Now, I read several years. What does that mean? To me, several means more than three. So are we talking four, five, six? I don't know. He was also late to start school, which I assume was because he couldn't walk or talk until several years after. And he was also described as very very reclusive. He would spend most of his time on his own. He didn't really have many friends. And finally, on top of all of that, Vince also wet the bed until he was 18 years old and he had to take medication to help him with this. And that is all we know of his younger childhood. So not that much. And at the age of 18, Vince did go to university. He worked really hard at school and he had to work twice as hard as his peers to catch up and he got really good grades. And he graduated university with a degree in computer programming. Following graduating, he did move to Beijing to find some work. And he did end up finding a job as a software engineer. And then a few years later in 1992, this is when he met his future wife, Anna, who he then married in 1995. So then a few years go by, he's still at his job as a software engineer. He is now married and it gets to two 
2001 and Vince is currently 33 years old. And Vince and Anna decide that they want a fresh start. They actually want to emigrate to Canada, which they did. They emigrated to Canada. And of course, this is where the rest of today's case takes place. Now, the couple decide to settle in Winnipeg. And the reason why they decided to settle here was because it was in the middle of Canada. It was geographically in the middle of Canada, which I have looked and it's technically not, or is it? I don't know. I suppose you could say it's in the middle of Canada if you look at the border between Canada and the US. That is actually the reason why they wanted to move to Winnipeg. And also because rental prices are more affordable in Winnipeg than other cities in Canada. So they both settle down and everything is going pretty well, apart from the fact that Vince cannot find a job as a software engineer. He was really hoping to use his skills and his degree to get a similar job to what he had in Beijing, now in Winnipeg, which did leave him very frustrated and he had to get jobs that he didn't really enjoy. There was one time where he was working at McDonald's. He worked in a few warehouses. At one point, he was a cleaner for a church. So other than the fact that he was frustrated with his job, everything else was great for the couple. However, as we know, it does not stay like that. Oh no. So now we get to 2004. Vince is now 36 years old and this is where everything changes. This is the down downward spiral, the beginning of the downward spiral. And I don't know what happened. Like, was there a catalyst? Did something happen to cause this downward spiral? So first of all, Vince started acting very weird, like completely not his usual self, but he was acting weird. And his wife had started to notice this weird behavior and she was very concerned. He wasn't eating properly. He wasn't sleeping. He was crying all the time. He kept saying that he was hearing voices in his head. And he kept telling Anna, his wife, that he was seeing visions from God. Now, none of that is great is it? No. Very concerning, very worrying. Now, Anna didn't have a clue what to do because Vince, up until this moment, hadn't expressed hearing voices or seeing visions from God. So Anna just thought this must be because he's not sleeping and he's kind of losing it because he's not sleeping. Because she didn't know what to do, she went to a local pharmacy and bought sleeping medication. You know, the stuff that you can buy over the counter. And she was just hoping that she could give him this sleeping medication, he would sleep and it would fix everything. However, that was not the case because Vince's problems were not that he wasn't sleeping. It was something a lot bigger, a lot more serious than that. But the couple kept fighting. They kept arguing. Vince, as we know, was already pretty reclusive, but he was becoming even more reclusive. He was really irritable. He was picking fights with people like strangers in the streets. He started barely leaving the house. I assume he was only really leaving the house for work. Other than that, he would not leave. The voices in Vince's head were getting louder and louder. He was saying that he was getting more messages from God. And then out of the blue, literally random, he decided to sell all of his childhood belongings. And he only ate potatoes. Like that's literally all that he was eating, potatoes. People around Vince had no idea 
what was going on. But that wasn't all because one day Vince just moved out. And I mean, he just packed up his bags and he moved out of the house. He told Anna that he needed some time alone and he was going to Toronto. I think he told Anna that he was going to Toronto for a job. And Toronto from Winnipeg, I don't know the exact distance, but it's very, very far. But the thing is, Vince didn't actually go to Toronto. Instead, he hid out in a remote city called Thompson, which was like 2,000 miles away from Toronto. Now, the reason why he went to this really remote place was because God told him to. God actually told him that he needed to buy some land in Thompson. So Vince was following the orders of this voice in his head and he went to Thompson to buy some land, even though he didn't have any money. And he spent six months in Thompson. He spent a lot of time there just wandering around and I don't have a clue what he was doing. But after being in Thompson for six months, the voice in his head is now telling him he does need to go to Toronto. So then he gets to Toronto and pretty much straight away, the voice in his head tells him that he needs to go back to Winnipeg to be with Anna. But it wasn't just that because the voice in Vince's head told him that he needed to walk there. Now I've already commented on how far these two cities are from each other. The voice in his head was telling him that he needed to walk thousands of miles. So that's what Vince did or at least that's what he attempted to do. And he started walking along the highway, which, oh my God, we don't call them highways in the UK, we call them motorways. I don't know how I would react if I saw a person walking on the motorway. And he wasn't walking on the highway for too long because the police were called. And when the police picked Vince up, he was just completely delusional. He hadn't eaten or slept for three days. And when the police were asking him, where are you going? Why are you walking on the highway? Vince said that he was, quote, following the sun. So because of the strange behavior that Vince was displaying, Vince was taken to hospital. And this next part is very, very important to today's case because when Vince was in hospital, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Now, when he was in hospital, he was prescribed medication and the doctors told him that if he takes this medication, I don't know what he was prescribed, but the doctors told him if he took this medication, his condition could be managed and it could be treated. And the doctors told him that he must take his medication. But Vince was in denial. He was like, um, no, I don't have schizophrenia. What are you talking about? So because of this, because Vince was in denial that he didn't have schizophrenia, even though he has just been diagnosed with it, he decided, I don't need medication. I don't need to be on medication. I don't have this mental illness. And it was because of this decision, maybe not solely because of this decision, but this decision is definitely a key part. It was because he decided not to take his medication. This would ultimately lead to devastating consequences. So we now jump forward to 2008. Vince is now 40 years old. And I just want to make it very clear that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 2004. 2005. So he has known about his diagnosis for three years. And for three years, he left his condition untreated. So 
We are now in 2008. Vince and Anna have now relocated to Edmonton. So Vince is in complete denial this whole time that he has schizophrenia. He's not on medication. And because his condition is left untreated, inevitably it just got worse. He continued to act very strangely. He would disappear for long periods of time. And I mean like weeks at a time, he would just disappear. He would laugh at inappropriate times in conversations. It's almost like he was living in his own little world in his head. And he actually did used to talk to himself quite a lot. He just didn't really seem to be present in the real world. On top of all of this, he also spoke about taking his own life. Now, Vince said that God, the voice in his head, was angry with him because Vince didn't carry out all of the orders that this voice told him to. So because this voice, God, was angry with him, he must take his own life. But Vince ignored this voice in his head on this occasion because Vince didn't want to take his own life. So over those three years between 2005 and 2008, Anna and Vince had gotten divorced at this point, but they were still living together. Anna actually decided to let Vince live with her rent free because she was so worried about him. Eventually, Vince managed to find a job in Walmart and for a short period of time it looked like he was finally getting his life back on track. He was still acting bizarrely but he seemed to be a little bit more stable and then out of the blue he just said I'm going back to Beijing. He said that he was going to go back to Beijing to quote find a new wife. So this is what he did. He went back to Beijing to find a new wife, which honestly is a little bit of a kick in the teeth to Anna, who is letting you live in her home rent-free. So he goes back to Beijing to find a new wife. And after spending one whole day looking for a new wife, he said to himself, oh, my mission is unsuccessful. So because his mission was unsuccessful, he flew back to Canada the very next day. He spent one day in Beijing. Now, once he was back in Canada, his behavior actually escalated. It got worse. He became more angry, more aggressive. He was fired from his job at Walmart for, quote, an altercation with a co-worker. But that wasn't the worst of it because the voices in his head had come back. And this time when they had come back, they were louder. And the voices in Vince's head told him he needed to, quote, protect himself from the evil forces around him. And as a result of these voices telling him that he needed to protect himself, he went out and bought himself a hunting knife. And this exact hunting knife would be used in the most horrific way later on. Now, these voices in his head, there was a common theme to the message that they were telling Vince. They were telling Vince that he needed to protect the world, that he was in danger, that there was aliens around him. So sadly, Vince decided to take action. So in July of 2008, Vince left Anna a note in their home, which said, quote, I'm gone. Don't look for me. I wish you were happy. And after Vince left that note, he walked out of the front door and he bought himself a Greyhound bus ticket. And this is literally the beginning of the series of tragic events in today's case. But ultimately, because he bought this bus ticket, he would meet a completely innocent, unsuspecting victim. And that was Tim McLean. So Tim McLean was born in 1985. He grew up in a small farming community of Eli, which 
which is just outside of Winnipeg. And this is where he lived with his parents and his six siblings. Now, Tim has been described as very active. Even as a young child, he was just one of those kids that liked to be involved in everything. He always wanted to be doing something. He could never sit still. He absolutely loved sports. He loved the outdoors. He just loved anything that was an adventure. And Tim also was just one of these people that had so many friends. He was so charismatic. He was just like a magnet for people. And something that just defined Tim was that he loved having fun. He was up for anything. Now, growing up, Tim quickly realized that the more traditional nine to five job was just not going to be what he wanted. He wanted a job that was going to be different every day. He didn't really like structure. And this is when Tim decided to join the carnival, which is definitely not a job that everyone does. It's definitely unique. But honestly, this job was absolutely perfect for Tim because every day was different and it was always an adventure. And because it was a carnival, it would travel around, which means that he was always traveling and he loved adventures. He loved going to new places. Another thing that Tim loved doing was to make videos and record his experiences working at the carnival. So it's, uh, I don't know what, quarter to nine? So it's about five to nine in the morning, on Wednesday morning. So it's Carterville, BC. That's what we come up with, with the name for this documentary seconds ago. Check it out. They got a little tiny water slide over there. And Tim as well always said that one day he was going to become famous. And given that he was an adventurer, he liked to travel. And he also liked to vlog and make videos about his experiences and his travel. I wouldn't be surprised if Tim had become a travel vlogger, because he definitely had the personality for it, 100%. Well, I'm on the Nanaimo Ferry, getting ready to leave the island. Basically, I'm just walking around the ferry. However, at the age of 22, Tim decided that he had had his time in the carnival. He had had all of these amazing experiences and he wanted to move on to the next stage of his life. He decided that maybe he does want a bit of structure now. He wants to maybe settle down, build a future, one day start a family. And Tim decided that he knew the exact place that he wanted to move to, and that was British Columbia. And the carnival was currently in Edmonton. And it was at this point when the carnival was at Edmonton that Tim did decide, right, okay, now is the time. Now is the right time for me to leave. And he decided that he was going to head home to Winnipeg to put his plans in place. Now, all of his friends and his work family were so devastated that he was leaving, but they wanted to give him a leaving present and they said, we'll pay for your plane ticket because originally Tim was going to catch a Greyhound bus. But they were like, no, we'll pull the money together and we'll get you a plane ticket. But Tim refused the plane ticket. He was like, no, no, it's fine. I actually want to catch the bus because Tim liked to travel. And even though this bus journey was going to be 24 hours, he decided that he wanted to do the bus journey because he wanted to travel. He wanted to look out the window. He wanted to have a little adventure. So Tim makes plans to catch the 1170 Greyhound bus from Edmonton to Winnipeg just after midnight on the 30th of July. But very sadly, Tim had no idea of what was going to unfold on that Greyhound bus. Okay, 
Okay, so now we have to get back to Vince. And it is just after midnight on the 29th of July. So this is a whole 24 hours before Tim is supposed to be getting on his bus. And it's on the 29th of July that Vince gets on his his bus from the depot in Edmonton. He bought himself a ticket using a fake name, Wong Pint, and then he boards the 1170 bus to Winnipeg, which is the exact same journey that Tim is going to take but just 24 hours later. So Vince is on his bus and after being on the bus for about 18 hours, because remember that this bus journey is 24 hours, after being on the bus for 18 hours, he started to hear voices in his head again, telling him to get off the bus. He was in danger and he needed to get off the bus. So as soon as the bus stopped at the next bus stop, which was in Ericsson, Vince immediately got off his bus. And as soon as he got off the bus, he realized, oh, there's nothing for me to do here in Ericsson. I actually do need to be in Winnipeg. So I need to get back on another 1170 bus. However, the problem was is that there wasn't going to be another bus at the Ericsson bus stop for another 24 hours, which is the exact bus that Tim McLean was getting on. But now Vince has to wait at this bus stop for 24 hours. Now Vince started to display some very bizarre behavior when he was waiting at this bus stop. Now, originally when he got off the bus, it was 6 p.m. And because he had to wait a whole 24 hours, a normal person would think, okay, I need to find somewhere to stay. They would go off and find a hotel or just somewhere to sleep, but not Vince. Oh no. He just sat there at the bus stop, not moving with his eyes wide open and just staring in front of him. And I do mean that he just didn't move. He just sat there, eyes wide wide open. Secondly, when he eventually does get to the next morning, Vince decides that he needs to sell all of his possessions. So that is literally what he does. He starts selling all of his belongings to anyone that he can come across at the bus stop. Now, currently he only had a couple of bags of luggage and a laptop, so he didn't exactly have much. He even at one point put his laptop down on the sidewalk with a sign on the laptop saying, for sale, $600. Now a 15 year old passed Vince and his laptop for sale. And he says to Vince that he doesn't have $600. He only has $60 on him. And the 15 year old was like, can I buy the laptop for $60? Clearly messing around because who in their right mind would think that they would actually be able to buy a laptop for $60. And I just want to point out that this laptop was brand new, but Vince was like, yeah, go ahead. $60 sold. And then any of his possessions that he couldn't sell, he started to burn his possessions just on the side of the street. I personally think that maybe the police should have been called at this point and then this case wouldn't have happened. And then finally, on top of all of that, Vince just started to pace up and down. He started to mutter under his breath. It was almost like he was doing a chant. He was speaking a different language. And so many people were so scared of him. They were actually avoiding him. Meanwhile, whilst all of this is going on, Tim has obviously gotten on his bus and Tim is 
is just on the bus. He's chilling out. He's enjoying the journey because he loves to travel. He's happily chatting to the other passengers on the bus. And Tim was getting closer and closer to Ericsson, which is the bus stop where Vince is. And then on the 30th of July, just around 6 p.m., Tim's bus pulls into the Ericsson bus stop where Vince Lee is sat there waiting and Vince steps on the bus and things are about to take a terrible turn. So Vince climbs on board and this bus is pretty full. It's not at maximum capacity, but there are 36 other people on this bus and most of the passengers, they've already been on this bus for about 18 hours. Most of them are very tired. A lot of them are sleeping and Vince takes a seat at the front of the bus. Now, initially Vince is minding his own business. He's not really bothering anybody at this moment. And then at some point, approximately an hour after Vince got on the bus, the bus pulls over for another stop. Vince and the rest of the passengers get off. They stretch their legs. They use the toilet. Some of them have a cigarette. And then after the break, all the passengers climb back on the bus. Now, what is normal for journeys like this when you are on a particular bus or train for a very long period of time, everyone will sit back in their seat that they've been sitting on the whole journey. But this is not what Vince did. Instead, when Vince gets on the bus, I'm pretty sure he's the last one to get on the bus. He walks down the middle aisle and he looks at everyone. He looks at everyone as he's passing them until he eventually gets to Tim. And Tim is sat pretty much at the back of the bus and Vince sits down next to Tim. Now, Tim didn't mind that Vince had sat next to him. I feel like most people would probably mind a stranger sitting next to them on a bus when there is no need, but Tim didn't mind. He actually smiled at Vince and was polite to him and said, hi, how you doing? Vince sat down, Tim put his headphones back on and Tim went to sleep. Now, Tim is obviously asleep, so he is not witness to the bizarre behavior that Vince starts to display. But the passengers around Vince are starting to become very concerned. First of all, Vince had on sunglasses. Now, there was no need for him to be wearing these sunglasses. So that, for starters, was definitely a little bit strange. And then secondly, I don't even know how to describe this because it's very weird, but Vince had a two-liter bottle of iced tea with him and a toilet roll. I know, very bizarre things, especially because he has no other possessions. It's very bizarre. Now, he would not let go of this toilet roll. And when he drank out of this two liter bottle of iced tea, he placed the toilet roll underneath his chin, like to like secure it in. And then he would drink out of the two liter bottle of iced tea, like with the toilet roll there. And then he started muttering under his breath again in a different language. And other passengers really were getting a bad feeling about this situation. They had that gut feeling that just something wasn't right and something was about to happen. And they had that feeling for good reason because Vince was actually losing control. He was still having voices in his head. He said that the voice was from God and this voice was getting louder and louder. The voice started telling Vince in that moment that he was in imminent danger and that the man, Tim, sat next to him was a demon, that he was an alien and this man was going to harm Vince and the other passengers on the bus. And then sadly, the voices inside of Vince's head told Vince that in order to save himself 
and the other passengers on the bus. He needed to destroy the man sat next to him. And this is where we get to the horrific events of today's case and the events that take place now on this bus have truly disturbed me. So I really do need to give a warning now. It is very graphic very, very graphic. So it was now 8.30 p.m. It was starting to get dark outside and the bus was now traveling down the Trans-Canadian Highway. There was a movie playing on the TV on the bus. It was actually The Mask of Zorro that was playing. And most of the passengers were either sleeping or kind of drifting in and out. Everyone was basically relaxed, chilled out, and it was very calm on this bus. And it was at this exact moment that Vince pulled out a hunting knife, the very hunting knife that he bought in Edmonton. And this is when he launched his attack. Tim was currently asleep. He was leaning against the window when all of a sudden Vince lifted up the hunting knife, turned to Tim and plunged the knife into Tim's neck. Tim woke up obviously and he let out what has been described as the most blood curdling scream you have ever heard. It has been described as something between a howling dog and a screaming crying baby. But this sound, this scream, it didn't phase Vince. He actually just took the knife out of Tim's neck and plunged it in again. The first person to realize what was going on was a 26-year-old man sat in the row in front of Vince and Tim, who was a man named Garnet. He had served five years in the Canadian military and he turned around and saw what Vince was doing and he shouted, a knife, a knife, get off the bus, get off the bus. And of course, this created even more chaos. The bus driver was alerted. They immediately pulled the bus over and there was a scramble to get off this bus. It was complete mayhem. Everyone was trampling over each other, pushing each other out of the way. There was an elderly woman pushed to the floor. People were genuinely scared for their lives that there was this man loose on the bus with a knife killing people. There was a mother at the back of the bus, literally right by where Vince is, murdering Tim and she had her young toddler with her and she was so terrified that she got her toddler and threw her toddler several rows forward to get her child away from the danger. I need to stress here how chaotic this bus was at this moment but with all of this chaos around him Vince just carried on stabbing Tim. It was almost robotic his movements. He had no expression on his face. He literally was just stabbing Tim like this, focused solely on his mission of destroying this man. And Tim did try to fight back. There were defensive wounds on his hands and arms. At one point, Tim had actually pushed past Vince and fallen into the aisle of the bus. But again, Vince had sole focus on what he was doing. He was not about to stop his mission. And at this point, when Tim had fallen to the floor on the aisle, he had been stabbed approximately 50 to 60 times. And Garnet was stood there and obviously he was in the military so he would be more able to deal with this situation than the average person, even though who the hell is able to deal with a situation like that, was thinking to himself, I need to do something. I have to do something. I cannot just let this man kill this other man. He asked another man that was nearby if he could help him detain Vince. But the other man was so scared that he just ran off the bus. Everyone at this point had fled the bus, including the bus driver. It was only Vince, Tim and Garnet 
on this bus. There was blood spurting everywhere. The whole floor on the bus was covered in blood and Tim was screaming the whole time. And Garnet was thinking to himself, how can I save this man? How can I stop this man stabbing Tim? But then Tim fell completely silent. His screams had stopped. And in that moment, Garnet knew that Tim had lost his life. And that murder is absolutely horrific. I cannot believe that that happened. It gets worse. It gets so much worse. To think of what Tim was feeling and going through in those final moments, that was such a brutal attack. Like I said, he had been stabbed 50 or 60 times and that wasn't even the end of the attack. So I don't even know how many times Tim was actually stabbed. And it is terrifying what he went through. He was just asleep. And then the next moment he is being murdered. Even after Tim had lost his life, Vince continued to stab Tim's body. At this point as well, Garnet had run off the bus because he knew that there was nothing he could do for Tim now and he needed to save himself. When Garnet had exited the bus, the rest of the passengers were just there on the side of the road. And again, it was chaos. People were crying. People were screaming and shouting. There was people throwing up. And then all of a sudden, a truck that was driving on the highway had seen that there was commotion going on at the side of the road and pulled over to see what was going on and could they help. So the truck driver was 28-year-old Chris. And honestly, Chris and Garnet and even the bus driver, they are all heroes. Garnet rushes up to Chris and asks him, does he have any weapons in his truck? Chris goes back to his truck. He arms himself with a crowbar. He gives a hammer to Garnet and the two men decide to go back on the bus to try and disable Vince. So when Chris and Garnet go back onto the bus, they come across a horror scene because Vince was kneeling in the aisle over Tim's body and with the hunting knife, Vince had started to decapitate Tim. With the hunting knife, he was literally just sawing off Tim's head. And this is why I said in the beginning of the video that this case just seems like a plot line for a horror movie. Chris and Garnet approach Vince to try and disable him. And I don't know how they were brave enough to do that. After seeing this man behead someone in front of you and they are still going up to try and disable him. I am sorry. Like I said, they are heroes. But as they approached Vince, Vince looked up and started to make his way towards them. Now, Chris and Garnet immediately panicked. I mean, of course I did. Vince is heading towards them with a hunting knife and he has just murdered somebody and he's now trying to decapitate them. So they immediately panic and they rush to get off the bus. But just as they got off the bus and they tried to shut the door, Vince was already right behind them and he had managed to get his knife through a gap in the door. And he was waving his knife at Chris and Garnet and everybody else. At this point, Chris and Garnet and probably the rest of the passengers, they ran for their lives. They believed that Vince was going to leave the bus, that Vince was now going to attack anybody that he came across. But instead, Vince just returned to Tim's body because that was his mission, destroy Tim. So when Vince had moved away from the door, the bus driver had managed to shut the door so Vince couldn't get off the bus. The bus driver also disabled the bus somehow to make sure that Vince couldn't drive off in the bus. So now Vince was locked in the bus with Tim's body. And then moments later, one of the most horrific things happened because Vince had successfully decapitated Tim. And Vince walked to the front of the bus holding Tim's head. He then held up Tim's head 
to show the rest of the passengers. He was holding up Tim's head like he was proud of what he had done. And then he dropped Tim's head like it was nothing. And everyone that was witness to this was just in complete, utter disbelief. They were truly sickened by what they had just seen. And at this very moment, the police arrived. Now you would think, the police are here. This is going to be all over. But you would be wrong. Because the police, <laughs> they decided basically not to do anything. Because there are still more horrific things to come. So the police arrive and like I said, they decide to do nothing, which is crazy. They realize that Tim has already lost his life and Vince is currently locked on the bus. There is no way that he can get out. So they decide that there's no need to detain Vince. Instead, they just stand there and watch. This case is already bad enough, but it's about to get worse. And I cannot get over the fact that the police arrived and they just stood there and watched. So back on the bus, Vince is obviously locked in with Tim's body and he starts to hear voices again. These voices tell him that Tim's body may come back to life. So Vince needs to destroy Tim's body as much as possible. So this is when Vince proceeds to dismember Tim's body even more. He starts by cutting into Tim's chest and then his stomach. And then he starts to remove Tim's organs. He removes Tim's heart, his lungs, his liver, his intestines. And as he is doing this, every so often, Vince will stand up and show the different organs to the police and the passengers just watching outside. And then occasionally, he would also lick the blood off of his fingers. I cannot get over the fact that the police are just stood there and they are watching this. Badger appears to be a six foot tall Asian male with short dark hair, black t-shirt, armed with a knife right now. And a pair of scissors and he's defiling the body at the front of the bus as we speak. I understand that their priority is to protect the public. They need to protect the passengers outside. I get it, okay? I realize that Tim, unfortunately, has already lost his life. However, how can you stand there as a police officer and let Vince dismember Tim's body even more? But that's not even the worst of it. Oh, no. Because now Vince returns to Tim's body and he starts to hack away at Tim's face. Vince removes Tim's nose, his ears, both of his eyes, and his tongue. And then Vince stands up to the window again in full view of everyone, and he starts to take a bite. Yes, you heard that right, a bite out of Tim's heart. In full view of everyone, everyone can see this. Vince is now cannibalizing. Tim's body. And the police still took no action. It's baffling. Badgers uh, at the back of the bus, um, packing off pieces and eating it. And the passengers that were on the bus were also baffled by the lack of action by the police. Passengers thought that the police would storm onto the bus, detain Vince, use maybe tear gas, and things went on like this for hours. I just cannot believe this happened. I know I've already said that a million times. I know I'm a broken record, but I cannot believe that the police just watched this all happen and they didn't do anything. But finally, at 1.30 a.m., which is four hours after the police arrived, that's how long this standoff lasted for. Vince had finally decided that his mission on the bus was over. 
it was complete. And he broke a window on the bus and jumped out and tried to make a run for it. Now, the police did detain him straight away. He didn't get away. And they were able to disarm him and arrest him. But that wasn't all, because when the police searched Vince for any more weapons, they looked inside of his pockets and there were various body parts of Tim in Vince's pockets, including his nose, his ears, and his tongue. And when the police finally got on the bus and searched it, of course, it was an absolute horror scene. There was actually none of Tim's body completely intact. There was so many body parts just thrown around the bus. There was blood absolutely everywhere, more blood than anybody would ever see ever. And some of Tim's body parts had been collected and put into plastic bags. And as the police were searching, through the crime scene, they found Tim's heart, but a third of it was missing. Tim's eyeballs were also missing. And it is thought that Vince had eaten a third of Tim's heart and also both of his eyeballs, which is absolutely horrific. I don't know why I feel like the fact that he ate Tim's eyes is just the worst because the eyes are the window to the soul, aren't they? They are such a huge part of the person. So following Vince's arrest, he was taken to a hospital because he had sustained many injuries in this attack. And then following the treatment at the hospital, Vince was not held in custody. Instead, he was transferred to a psychiatric facility so they could assess his mental state. The passengers on the Greyhound bus were taken to a police station immediately for questioning. After questioning, they were put up in a hotel. They were also bought a change of clothes because they were not allowed to access their luggage on the Greyhound bus because obviously the Greyhound bus is a crime scene. And then finally, after 24 hours, the passengers were released and they were able to get on a different Greyhound bus and they were able to carry on their journey. Now, meanwhile, the story of the murder had broke on the news. However, the identity of the victim was still not released because the police hadn't contacted Tim's parents yet. Everyone was talking about what had happened on this Greyhound bus, including Tim's parents. Tim's mom, Carol, she was working in a care home and she was watching the news when she was working. And on her breaks, she was talking about this case with others at the care home, not knowing that the unidentified victim was her own son. At the care home as well, when it was dinner time, they sat down to say grace and they prayed for the victim's family, not knowing that that was her. She also said to herself, thank God, it's not my son. And then the news was broken to Tim's family that the victim was indeed their son. And I just can't even imagine the anguish that they must have been in. So now going back to Vince at the psychiatric facility, a whole week had passed now and it was found that Vince was incredibly sleep deprived. And obviously they knew he had schizophrenia and they said that his schizophrenia was about as bad as it can get. So he was given a lot of rest and medication and finally he was in a state where he could be interviewed. So he was first interviewed by a forensic psychiatrist and he said quite a lot of things he did, but a few of the things he said were, quote, I am the evil son of God. God chose me as the killer and he chose Tim McLean as the victim. God controls all people 
for his own reasons. Following this, Vince asked if he was going to be executed. Vince said that he deserved to die for his actions. Following this interview, Vince continued to receive treatment. And over the next few months, he was interviewed by that forensic psychiatrist 19 times. And then finally, on March the 3rd, 2009, nine months after the murder, Vince Lee finally went to trial. Vince's defense team immediately set out the defense that he couldn't be held criminally responsible because of his schizophrenia, that he wasn't in a sane state of mind at the time of the murder. The psychiatrist that was interviewing him testified that they also didn't think that Vince could be held criminally responsible because at the time of the murder, his schizophrenia was so bad that he wasn't in control of his own actions. And after two days, that is how long the trial lasted for, the judge agreed. And therefore, he couldn't be held criminally responsible for the murder of Tim McLean, which means that he will not go to prison. Instead, he will go to a psychiatric hospital. Vince would be given treatment at the psychiatric hospital, and then his condition would be reviewed every single year, meaning that Vince could technically be released from this psychiatric hospital within a year and he could be released into the public with no further punishment. Now, in the aftermath of the trial, Tim's family were understandably furious. They were angry that the trial had concluded in two days and they were not involved in the trial whatsoever. Normally, when you have a trial, there is always a time where you can have the victims speak out. They can give their impact statement. The families of the victims can speak in the trial and address the court. Tim's family were never allowed to do that. They were never allowed to address the person that killed their son. Tim's family strongly believed that he should be held responsible for what he has done. And after the trial, they actually petitioned to change the law. They wanted the law to change that if a person has been found not criminally responsible and they've taken a life, they wanted that person to serve at least some sort of prison sentence after their treatment, which I kind of agree. But not just that, Tim's family filed a civil suit against the Canadian police because they didn't do anything for their son. They were horrified at how the police just abandoned their son. They had just left him to be dismembered and cannibalized. And one of the hardest things that Tim's family had to deal with is that they never got Tim's body. And it's because Tim's body was left in such a bad state that there was no body to return to them. And this is what I mean. The police should have done something. Yes, they couldn't save Tim's life, but they could have saved his body. And Tim is obviously the main victim in today's story, but he is not the only victim because the passengers on the bus have been absolutely traumatized by what they have seen. The truck driver, Chris, he was never able to go back to work as a truck driver. He had to switch jobs and because of this case, he doesn't like to be in large crowds. Another man that was on the bus, he was a student at the time of the murder and he was doing pretty well. But after the murders, he was never able to go back to his studies. He was barely able to get through classes. And he also went from a really friendly, outgoing person to now an anxious, withdrawn person. Other passengers have suffered from nightmares. Others have PTSD. Some of them have turned 
turned to alcohol and substances to cope, which has led to addictions. Two other passengers filed a civil suit against Vince, the Greyhound bus company, and the Canadian government seeking compensation for being exposed to the murder and the beheading, and also saying that there should be stronger security on these buses. But that lawsuit failed. And finally, one other woman had her child taken away from her at birth because she suffered from PTSD and doctors feared that because her PTSD was so severe, she wouldn't be able to care for her child. There are so many lives that have been destroyed because of this case. And finally, there is one more shocking thing that we need to talk about. And that is where we get to the controversial bit about this case. And that is in 2016, so just eight years after the murder, Vince Lee was released. Yeah, yeah, you heard that right. He was released. It was decided that he was fully treated and he was no longer a threat to society and he could be released and rejoin society and it all be okay. He was actually given a new name, which is Will Baker. When he was initially released, he did have to check in so they could monitor his mental health, his schizophrenia, and also make sure that he's still taking his medication. However, in 2017, so one year after his release, it was determined that Vince no longer needed supervision. He was granted absolute discharge, meaning that he is responsible for himself. He no longer has to check in with anyone and he is responsible for his own mental health and for taking his own medication. I cannot believe it. I, I, I'm speechless about this. I really, really am. But understandably, the fact that Vince was now released and free to live his life caused public outrage. It sickens me. Now he's gonna be walking the streets of Winnipeg. I'm horrified by that. People were shocked that he was able to commit murder and such a horrific murder. And also the fact that he murdered a stranger unprovoked, and now he was just released into society, unsupervised. Make that make sense. It doesn't. What the actual hell? I just don't understand why they have left him in control of his own medication when he has proven in the past to not take his medication. And my opinion on this case is that he should have been in a psychiatric hospital. He should have been treated. But then as soon as he was treated, he should have been transferred to prison. At the end of the day, he has still killed somebody. So there is a lot of debate surrounding this case. A lot of people think that he should be in prison. He shouldn't have been released. And I kind of agree. It doesn't really feel like he has been punished for what he has done. He hasn't been held accountable and I think that's wrong. But now I wanna finish this video focusing on the victim of today's case. And that was Tim McLean. Tim McLean was described as a loving, friendly, extremely charismatic person. He loved to have fun. He loved meeting new people. He loved having adventures. He was described by his brother as a true modern day nomad. Well, I'm on the Nimal Ferry, getting ready to leave the island. He had a huge family who absolutely adored him and following his loss, they said Tim's appetite for life was legendary. He could never stand still. There was a whole world to see and everywhere he went, he brought light and joy. And then tragically, six years after the murder, it was finally revealed to the public that at the time of the murder, Tim was a father-to-be. And five months after his death, Tim's son was born, a son
son that Tim would never get to meet, and a son that is now in part being raised by Tim's mom, Carol, which is just absolutely heartbreaking. Tim still had so much more to give in life, and he was taken far too soon. He was just 22 years old. And my heart just breaks for Tim's family. I can't believe what they had to go through, and I can't believe that they have to just accept that their son's murderer is out there just walking around, living his life. And that brings us to the end of the episode on the Greyhound bus murder. There are no updates to this case, so thank you so much everyone for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would really mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review because it really does help out the podcast. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom studios and I'll see you all in the next one.